Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, where A-lister food writers talk me through the four food moments from their latest books. This week we're off to Italy with food and travel writer Christine Smallwood, whose latest book on Italian food is part of Bloomsbury's World Vegetarian series. There is still really widespread love of, yes, what we for shorthand know as the Mediterranean diet. And a lot of that is vegetable-based. It may not always be vegetarian. There may be non-vegetarian cheese in it. There may be a little bit of pancetta or a bit of capocollo or some other sort of cured meat in it. Uh, But it is predominantly vegetable-based. But before we find out if there's even a word for vegetarian in Italian, this month's sponsor, Mediterranean fine food producer Odyssey, has a bunch of goodies for anyone who answers the question at the end of this episode. And I've been rummaging in its Santa sack this week to pull out the last of its health-supporting Mediterranean goodies, molasses. Here's home mixologist Tom Gilliford, who you'll also recognise from this year's Bake Off, on where to find flavour when you're mixing up your Christmas cocktails. Molasses make a great alternative to refined sugars in drinks, and particularly the Odyssey molasses, because you've got such a range of flavours. You can have their great molasses, which has that rich depth and complexity that you get from things like wine. You've got their date molasses, which is figgy and sugary and perfect for Christmas, or their pomegranate molasses, which has a, a biting acidity and a balancing sweetness. So all really perfect for a cocktail. You could put it in a daiquiri, in a mojito, in an old-fashioned. Anywhere you'd put a teaspoon of refined sugar, white sugar, or a sugar syrup, you can just swap that out for a teaspoon of any of their molasses and really play around with those to, to get the flavors you like. And the great thing about molasses is They are a sweet sugar, but they're unrefined, so they retain all those complex chemicals that get taken out of refined sugar. And those complex chemicals, those are actually the flavours. So those are the things we want in really interesting cocktails. So if you're looking for a sugar alternative for your Christmas cocktails, highly recommend the Odyssey Molasses range, particularly for me, their great molasses, which makes an excellent twist on an old-fashioned. Odyssey's range of molasses includes grape, date, pomegranate and newly out, carob molasses. Odyssey's organic grape molasses is an intense, sweetly aromatic syrup. Made from cold extracted grapes grown in the Messinia region of Greece, this versatile product has notes of quince, wine and dried fruits with a gentle viscosity. Now, come with me to Italy, where Christine Smallwood is in the markets of Puglia, sniffing her tomatoes and chatting to the producers about their vegetables as she pulls out the best vegetarian recipes in the country for her latest book, The World Vegetarian, Italy. I asked her why Italian markets are about so much more than food shopping. It is going shopping, but also a social activity. You know, there is a lot of chatter in markets. And, you know, as you've sort of mentioned, I I start my book talking about a visit to a market in the south of Italy. Um... And it is very much a kind of social get together, not just chatting to the producers, but chatting to your friends. And just that whole level of engagement about, um, you know, where these onions have come from, where this fennel has come from. Um, Yes, and checking it and smelling it and, you know, moving from one stall to another because you know that that person um, sells the best carrots, but somebody else sells the best aubergines. So, you know, you won't just shop at the the one person as much as, of course, they'd like you to. Um, And I make that point um, at the start of the book, and it really, that something struck me when I was working down in Puglia in the the south of Italy. I went to, um, for a wander one day, went round the market of Martina Franca, which is the most beautiful town, and there's a big square outside of the old town that 
has a huge market, predominantly fruit and veg, but there's meat and cheese and there's some clothing and all the rest of it. And I was wandering around. I'm sure you do this when you travel too. You have to go to the to the local market. Um, you know, sort of looking at all the characters and looking at the produce. And I was struck by how the signs on the veg were completely different to our signs here. So when I go to my local market, my sign will say potatoes and the price or, I don't know, onions and the price. Whereas at this market, there was no vegetable name on the sign. Why would there be? You can see that that price sign is in the middle of a pile of tomatoes or in the middle of a pile of aubergines. But it said the name, it said Sant'Agostino, it said Ostuni, where those veg had come from. And most of those places were very, very near. They were literally a couple of kilometres down the road from where we were. Some place names were from other regions, but most of them were so near that they obviously had to be fresh. And that's what it's so telling, isn't it? There's a whole story behind that. There's an assumption that people would know what that means. There would be the subtext of places way more important than than anything else. And of course, everybody knows what a potato is and that there are so many different types of potatoes. Or And you do talk a lot about potatoes in, in your book. Surprisingly, we don't necessarily associate potatoes with Italy. Yeah, people often think, well, you know, Italian's not so really into potatoes, but there are lots of potato recipes in the book. And I think probably the most well-known is gnocchi. Um, and my gnocchi recipe is, is a stuffed gnocchi, which I really like. So although most traditionally um, in Italy, you'd get meat filled gnocchi they they work so well with mushrooms and the feedback from that recipe has been astounding uh which is which has been great but yeah mushroom filled gnocchi the way to go um but lots of other um you know potatoes in recipes so things like uh pizzoccheri which is that fantastic rib sticking pasta from lombardy in the north so and it is you know perfect for a day after that you've been on the slopes or you've been for quite a strenuous hike um so, yeah, buckwheat pasta, potatoes, cheese, cabbage and fried onions. You know, if that's not rib sticking, I don't know what is. I <laughs> um, think things like brustengo, the, um, the sort of Italian version of, of bubble and squeak. And there is a fantastic recipe from right down in Calabria in the south um, with white potatoes and sweet potatoes. Now, I had never thought of sweet potatoes as being an Italian veg. But a chef down there was saying, yeah, we grew up with sweet potatoes. You know, they're sort of dense in calories. It's what we needed to work the fields. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, p- potatoes in Italy, they're popular. And you, you get things like, you know, the sagra of the colfiorito, the red potatoes and things. You know. Yeah. I mean, of course, one of the, the, the issues with uh, Italian food, well, one of the reasons that Italian food has such a good reputation is because there is such a variety of uh, excellent fruit and vegetables available all year round. They don't have the hungry gap that we have, obviously. And they do live off the land. I mean, that's why the, it's the Mediterranean diet particularly is the healthiest still in the world. But in my experience, it has been quite tricky to find the real Italian food. It feels like tourism and good Italian food don't always go together. And I know that your first food moment is an example of really going the extra mile to get to the excellent place. I mean, as as somebody, obviously, you know Italy terribly well now, having worked in it for years and years and years. But was there ever a point where you felt that the door was closed before you were able to prise it open, speak enough Italian, show enough interest to be allowed in? I'm not sure that I regarded it in that way, but I've certainly had um, 
I've certainly had a few duff meals, although not that many. I think probably when I think of the meals I've been most disappointed in, they've been more at the kind of fine dining end. Um, and I, I, I do understand why if you if you go out to Italy and you sort of meet up with friends, they often want to take you to the really kind of swanky fine dining places. Um, because, you know, it's something special for them. And so they want to share that something special with you. Whereas, of course, when we go to Italy, we love the more rustic end. We love the more sort of, you know, mama's traditional recipes or, you know, kind of sort of younger person's slight reinventions and, and, and adaptations of those recipes. We don't really, well, I don't really want the fine dining swanky end. So more of my disappointments have been there. I mean, I think there are some golden rules of travelling that most people adhere to, which is, you know, don't go to a place with pictures of the food and, you know, tourist menus everywhere. Um, so, And go off the beaten path. And, and go off the beaten path. And I think there are certain... Yeah, there are certain things which have stood me in good stead when I've researched various books. Um, and that is finding wine dealers. Wine dealers always know good places to go because restaurants that care about their wine, and we're not talking about, you know, the expensive Sasakaya labels, but places that really look carefully at their wine list tend to serve very good food. How do you find the wine dealer? Um, well, I've now reached the point where it's kind of friends of friends. I can always find a wine dealer. Um, but I think... Um, if you're, I would say if you're just a regular tourist, go to a wine tasting at a, a kind of a local winery. It doesn't have to be particularly high end, but a local winery that has a good reputation and speak to the people there about what restaurants would they recommend. Now, obviously, they will recommend the restaurants that have their wines on the wine list, but that may not be such a bad thing. You may get a bit of a steer there. Which is kind of what you did in your first food moment, meeting a wine dealer in Umbria. Tell us about that. Yes, I um, I wrote a book on the people behind the food in Umbria and um, I went around various towns and most of the towns were very well known. They're on the tourist route. But there was a town I wanted to include uh, called Terni and the reason I wanted to include it is because it's the second biggest town in Umbria, so after Perugia. And guidebooks are really dismissive about Terni they kind of say, oh, it's not really worth going to. And I kind of understand that in that, you know, Terni is not a pretty hill town in a region that's full of them. It was raised in the Second World War because it had lots of armaments factories. And it's a very work-a-day town. But because it was the second biggest town, I wanted to go and have a look at it. So um, the end of a week's manic research trip, you know, really full agenda, lots of long interviews, lots of spending time in people's kitchens. And we arrive, my husband and I arrive in Terni quite late, much, well, later than we were supposed to, and interview at Overrun. Check into our hotel, throw our bags into the room. This is long before smartphones and sat-nav. Go down to the receptionist and I say, could you give me a map of the town and directions to Via Treyarchi? And the guy sort of looks at me, gives me a map and says, Where? And I said, Via Treyarchi. He said, where are you going to? And I said, oh, I have a reservation to eat at Ostella de la Malora. Ah, yes, yes. Oh, here, you need to go here. So he made a mark on this map in a place which was just a, a squiggle of lines. It was the old town. There were no street names on this part of the map. And we said, okay, how far from here? So oh, seven minutes maximum. You'll be there in no time. 
So off we set. 40 minutes later, we have asked countless people. Okay, I'd given up asking for the street name. Nobody knew it. But I'd named the Osteria. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Second left, third right, third left. Okay, so we went round and round and round the old town. And it's cold and it's a drizzly October night. And finally, my husband says, oh, come on, look, we're exhausted. Looked like a decent pizzeria. Let's go there. Have an early night. I said, okay, 10 more minutes. So we carried on walking around these narrow, dark streets. Finally, there is this tiny, narrow doorway lit up. Oste de la Malora. We've found it. We open the door, we walk in, and it's a very, very narrow place. There's a sort of a bar counter. There's a bench along the wall with small tables in front of it, and there are two people. A man sitting there being served a glass of wine by a man in this splendid brown leather apron. And they both look up as we walk in, and we say, Buonasera, buonasera. And I said um, in Italian, um, I have a reservation. Didn't get any further. They both went, ah, Christina. <laughs> and I've completely spooked out by this. I sort of said, yes. Subsequently explained, I was the only person ever to have made a reservation. No one had ever done that before. <laughs> so we, we sat down, you know, we made to feel welcome, sat down next to the, the diner, Beppe, um, got talking to him he explained that this oste was the um it was the the social hub of most of the doctors and surgeons from the hospital he was a neurophysician at the hospital um all of the people from the theater any performers that were passing through basically all of the interesting fun people in town this is where they came <laughs> so we were given a glass of wine and within an hour the place was full to overflowing Everybody intrigued because we were the two people who'd made a booking. They'd been talking about it for a week. People have made a booking to come here. No one makes a booking. Um, and we spent the night being told stories about some amazing food that we enjoyed, some fantastic wines. Um, we're given connections and introductions to all sorts of people. Some people turned up with guitars. There was a bit of a sing-song. Lots of Serie A footballers turned up. We were told, don't say anything because they're not supposed to be out drinking. But, you know, um, we had the time of our lives and we left at 2.30 in the morning. Fantastic. I mean, it sounds like you had the most amazing food and drink all night. And you choose the classic salad that, that you put in the book. Well, a lot of it, I have to say, was not vegetarian food. Um, so the night we were there was oyster night, for example. Um, but I think that the classic salad, partly, um, so sorry to take a step back, Andrea Barbaccia was the, the manager. And the classic salad is one of those salads that I love because it's not, um, you know, there's great French salads that we like, so salad composé and everything sort of mixed together. I quite like this popular way in Italy of, of keeping all the components different so you can sort of mix them as you want them. But they are really seasonal and really fresh. Um, and it wasn't just Andrea, that, that meeting with Renzo, um, uh, the, the owner of, the, of this amazing wine bar. He introduced me to so many other people. So, you know, I think, as I said to you, that Crazy Celery, the, the dish in the book, um, was from a friend of Renzo's called Filippo. And he's, his place is still there in Spoleto, and I can't recommend it highly enough if you go. Um, and I think celery is one of those veg that often people kind of a bit sort of 
I don't know, a bit non-committal about, or or they really dislike it. Um, but yeah, celery mixed with a bit of chili is fantastic. Yeah, but when you talk about those connections with the people you meet at a bar, that is the way to discover well Italy and so many places. Um, y- your second food moment is another. It's a, it's a trail from Renzo, isn't it, to Vittorio, a- another wine dealer. Yes, um, which led you to the focaccia in the book. Indeed. So when um, when I was looking for another region to write a book about, it was Lorenzo who said to me, you have to go down to Puglia. And this is going back nearly 20 years when people really weren't talking about Puglia and its food. Um, so Lorenzo put me in touch with a, a friend of his, Vittorio Cavalieri, who is another wine dealer down in Puglia. And I had called Vittorio and said I was coming down. He said, right, give me your flight details. I'll meet you at the airport. I said, no, no, there's no need to do that. Yes, yes, I will meet you at the airport. And that is very Pugliese. I've been asked to help you, and so I will help you in capital letters. Um, And he met me at the airport. We spent a few hours in his office talking about the culinary culture of not just Puglia beyond. And Vittorio is one of those amazing people who just knows so much about Italian food and wine. And I've sat at tables with Vittorio and other people. And he's told them things that they didn't know about things which they allegedly are specialists in. Um, and he took us, for, he took me for this amazing lunch. Just, I thought we were going for a, a sandwich, a quick sandwich, but no, we went for this amazing lunch and going down the motorway, he called a whole load of people, a whole load of people and they all gathered and we all had this sort of fantastic lunch, which was this introduction to me to the food of Puglia. And I really wanted to include a focaccia in the book. And when I go to Vittorio's house, I'm always given this, um, this focaccia barese, which his wife Anna makes. And it is absolutely fantastic. And again, it comes back to potatoes. So the Bari version of focaccia includes mashed potato. So obviously you have to include it. Just explain how the potatoes actually work in focaccia. Um, well, they, they, give it, they give it a kind of a sort of lightness, really. Um, and and well, sort of a bit of lightness and a bit of substance, too. But they sort of add a flavour and they give it a texture. Um, and they just work really well. For, for most people, I mean, what we understand of, of the Mediterranean diet for, uh, mostly, I mean, we're in Bari now, we are in the south. Um, it is peasant food, isn't it? I mean, it's it, and like most peasant diets around the world, it is ten, tends to be the healthiest. But it uses food from the land and it uses food in really interesting ways because you have to fill yourself up and you have to have good nutrition. I mean, how much has that changed now? Because as we go through to your third food moment, where you're going to be starting to talk about contemporary cooking, what differences do you see between the classic Mediterranean diet, which really hasn't changed very much since the Roman days, and and what's happening now? Um, I think I think the Mediterranean diet is, is still even down in Italy, so popular. I think they're very proud of it. I think, of course, it's a mistake to think about Italy as being just the Mediterranean diet. Certainly sort of in the north, you get that alpine zone of growing. Um, There is this whole sort of issue with um, not all Italians still eating healthily and sort of junk food and the popularity of, of other less nutritious food coming in. But there is still really widespread love of Yes, what we for shorthand know is the Mediterranean diet. Um, and especially down in Puglia, you get that sort of love of antipasti. I mean, antipasti in Puglia is a complete art form. Um, 
And a lot of that is vegetable based. It may not always be vegetarian. There may be non-vegetarian cheese in it. There may be a little bit of pancetta or a bit of capocollo or some other sort of cured meat in it. Uh, but it is predominantly vegetable based. Um, and I think the influence of other food cultures to me is is fascinating because obviously, you know, we're not the only people who are obviously not this year traveling more. Other people are, and especially with social media, they're seeing dishes from other countries. Um, and I think there is a misconception that Italians just love Italian food. There are a lot of Italians I know who are very interested in food from other countries. And so why shouldn't mm. they, you know, adapt things a little bit? Mm. I know a lot of Italian people who would be horrified at the very notion of it. Um, but yes, but, you know, I think, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of genuine interest, especially from young people, in, mm. in what other people eat and how good food is from other countries oh, too. Of course. You take us in your third movement to Milan, uh, where you d take us around some of the places that you found that are do have that influence from other places. And you talk about Alice Delcor, actually. She's cooked at the River Cafe. So there are people who, of course, there have always been great Italian chefs who've moved around the world and brought all their ideas back with them, but based it on the essence of, of where they come from. But tell us what you found in Milan. Well, I think Milan is such an interesting city. Um, I didn't fall in love with it the first time I visited it, but I absolutely love it now. It's got, um, under normal circumstances, you know, it's got amazing museums, amazing art and some fantastic food. And I think you do have to look quite hard for good food in Milan in as much as I think if you're eating out, there is a lot of very, very high-end dining um, and so for me, as I said earlier, that's not my preferred option. Um, and when I went to, to Milan, I was very fortunate um, when I was doing research. I met up with um, a fantastic lady who works for an organization called Identita Golosa, who do these amazing food events. And she, we, we had a meeting with a local council and various people. And then she took me to lunch. And she said, where would you like to go? And I said, well, actually, I'd love you to choose. And so she took me to a place called Ratana, uh, which is up by Joya uh, Metro Station. And Ratana is, one by, is run by this amazing chef called Cesare. And he is really into Milanese food. And that's what he does. And he uses Milanese terminology. But he does kind of lighten it a little bit. So I have had, uh, at his place, I've had a dessert made with lettuce and carrot. He said, because that's what in season. We don't have any fruit in season in Milan. Mm. So that's what we're having. And he would never give me the recipe. He said, it took me years to work on that. You're never going to have that recipe, which is fair <laughs> enough. Um, but he is a real risotto king. And there is um, a risotto of his in the book, a beetroot risotto with Jerusalem artichokes, which is divine. And he said to me when we were talking about places to go to, although his restaurant was quite well known at the time, he sent me to a place that really wasn't, well, it was only just opened, I think, um, called Erba Brusca, which is out on the Navili, so that very trendy part of Milan, although Erba Brusca is not kind of in the trendy part. It is seriously on the edge. It's the canals, bit, it is, isn't it? It's on the canals bit, yes. Mm. But, um, yeah, Alice's restaurant isn't on the trendy bit of the canals. She'd be the first to say that. Um and I went there and was just blown away. I thought it was fantastic. And she has at the back of her restaurant, which she, she runs with her partner and the father of her twins. Um, she has an orto. She has a veg garden. Um, and 
she says she's always amazed by how people think she grows everything for the restaurant because it's impossible you can barely grow everything for family in the size of our water but it's great to sit out there in the summer and you can see what is growing um, and they still have an outside covered terrace in the winter so you can still to a certain extent see what's growing but what's so interesting about her is because she um, she's half British half French she was brought up in the States as you said she worked to the River Cafe over here so she has a huge sort of global food influence mm. and she regularly brings other things into her menu so she's a big fan of using miso for that kind of umami kick for vegetarian dishes um, in a winter salad in in a winter salad yeah yeah works perfectly yeah. um but i think because she has a really deep knowledge of italian food and she's both sort of respectful of it and very skillful as a chef obviously um the Milanese have completely embraced her. They just think her food is fantastic, whether it is mm. straight down the line, Italian classics. And thing, dishes like uh, pizzoccheri, the pasta dish we were talking about earlier, is, in Alice's opinion, a perfect dish. You cannot tweak it. You cannot change it. It is absolutely perfect as it is. So therefore, she won't muck around with it for the sake of it. But mm. she will take Italian veg, squash, castelfranco, make the most sensational horseradish dressing and make a winter salad. Now, why, if you're an Italian, would you not like that? Yeah, absolutely. No, it makes perfect sense. It's a good call. I have to go back there when, when I'm next in Milan, whenever that will be. Oh, let's you'll, go together. Come on. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> I'm going to go where your wine dealers are. Absolutely. absolutely. Actually, because you're, you're trying to just travel by train, aren't you? I am. Yeah, I perfect whole, destination. Europe by train. I have so many places to go to, but yes, Milan is very easy actually, isn't mm. it? In in the north. Let's go back to where it all started. For you, it was Ischia. For me, it was Ischia. I I ended up in Ischia when I was eighteen. I went on a six week trip across Europe in a Fiat five hundred with <laughs> three other friends and a tent, and we got to Ischia. And I honestly thought I had died and gone to heaven. It is the most beautiful place in the world. Isn't it? Can I say four people and a tent in a Fiat five hundred? <laughs> please, please weeks. show me those photos. Never again. <laughs> No, it's it's a it's a great island. It was my introduction to Italy. So my my parents were uh, were big travellers. They sort of lived and worked abroad before I arrived, um, and they had they had friends all around the world, and they had friends on the island of Ischia. And we went there several times when I was young, and I can still remember certain aspects of that and they're not all food related i can remember building fantastic sand castles and playing with the boys on the beach but i do have strong memories of the food i can remember being allowed to throw the pizza dough in the local pizzeria and being told my pizza was the best anyone had ever made now i suspect in hindsight maybe my pizza dough was i don't know given to the animals or something and something else was produced but i was definitely allowed to help throw it i can remember going to um, once a week we were allowed to go to this beautiful bakery that served uh, bomboloni little donuts in this big pink box with lots of pink tissue paper i can remember having um you know ice creams with just the most delicious fruit um and huge bowls of cherries but you seem to have those every lunchtime this massive bowl of cherries and being slightly cheeky and, and telling my mother that no it wasn't the number of stones that showed how many cherries i'd eaten it was the number of stalks you know always picking a picking a cherry without a stalk so you can maybe get an extra one um so all those food recollections still um 
yeah, still sort of resonate with me and make me smile. And I thought it was quite a nice, um, it was quite a nice circle because a very good friend of mine, Jane Baxter, who's a chef down in Devon, who is one of the best chefs in this country and who is a big Italiophile. Um, and X River Cafe as And well. X River Cafe too, exactly. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a theme here, isn't it? Um, I've been to Italy on, on countless occasions with Jane and she went to Ischia a while back um, and was raving about a lemon pasta recipe. And I thought it would be quite nice to include a sort of an Ischian recipe in the book just for my, I don't know, for my happiness, I guess. Um, and again, that comes back to if you really want to make a fantastic Ischian lemon pasta, then you do have to have, you know, a really gutsy, full flavoured, unwaxed lemon. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to get to where you need to be. Yeah. It's a it's a wonderful trip through Italy through its food. Um, I think it's really interesting to kind of pull out all the vegetarian dishes from the massive Italian feasts that we've all experienced. For you, you're not a vegetarian. No, but no, I'm not. It's more to really kind of say what Italian cuisine can offer a growing number of vegetarians. I guess so. Yes, it is. And I think there's also what I, what I also wanted to do with the book was to show that there are so many Italian vegetarian dishes that aren't just pasta and chopped veg. Um, and I did that. I left the pasta recipes to the end um, because it would be too easy to do that. And the pasta recipes, as, as you'll have seen, um, are more sort of slightly quirky pasta dishes. So that Pugliese classic with the fried pasta included, um, egg yolk ravioli, which is so much easier to make than people think they are. Mm. Um, you get a lot of bang for your buck with that dish. Um, and I think that, well, I hope that it shows this whole sort of importance of eating fresh seasonal veg Whereas I think lots of recipe books you see, and there's nothing wrong with this at all. It's not a criticism in the slightest, but you know, there are huge lists of ingredients because you sort of need to layer lots of flavour up. And I love food like that. I really do. But I think the Italian approach is to let the individual vegetables sing. Yeah. So you can't have too many other flavours with them. Yeah. Um, and so most of the most of the recipes don't have long lists of ingredients because it is letting the beetroot sing or or whatever other vegetable it is that is a a a really important addition to a plant-based diet as we look at how to eat to save the planet we have to start thinking more about a plant-based diet and and to look to italy to the the kings and queens of food uh, for so many people to there's a lot of vegetarian ideas right in front of them and you've pulled them together beautifully in this book so thank you so much christine and uh, thank you for just taking us on this very bleak dreak <laughs> november day off to italy for just half an hour thank you so oh, much. thank you so much julie thanks for listening eagle-eared listeners will know where in greece that lovely great molasses comes from and if you're the first to tweet me at jilly smith or comment on the post about this episode on instagram at cookie the books with jilly smith you'll get a parcel of goodies from odyssey go to jillysmith.com and click on bookshop to get discounted copies of all the books featured in the podcast and i'll see you next week when i'll be back with a countdown to christmas with some must buy books kicking off with carolyn Steele and her groundbreaking vision of how food can save the world in Setopia. 